There's something different about the way Chloe Warbrick does politics. In last year's Auckland mayoral campaign, she managed to engage people and bring issues to those who perhaps had not often thought about politics. She exceeded expectations and finished third ahead of more fancied rivals. She's fast becoming a political superstar, earning a high placing on the Green Party list for this year's election, and has a good chance of gaining a seat at Parliament. Chloe paid a flying visit to Whanganui on Saturday, where she spoke at Article and spent some time at the River Traders Market. We caught up with her down there. Welcome to the 4500 Podcast. We're on iTunes, so please subscribe there, and you can visit us at the4500.co.nz and follow us on Facebook. Uh, Chloe Swarbrick, welcome to Whanganui. Thank you. Um, I was listening to you on Radio New Zealand the other day with mm-hmm. Jack McDonald, I think it was. Yep. And you were talking a lot about um, engagement and lack of engagement and getting young people involved in politics. Yep. That was also the catalyst for your campaign. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about that issue over the last year? So I've learned that people are a lot smarter than typically your politician or your average person or even the media gives them credit for. Um, I mean, the major thing with my campaign is not explicitly about young people. Uh, I'm really interested in all people who are neglected by the politics of the day. So that that doesn't discriminate on age. Uh, Typically it actually discriminates on things like income or education uh, or vocation interests or otherwise uh, so I'm interested in engaging everybody who is currently disaffected and not engaged with the current political system of the day I think it looks like giving respect and then you get it back because right now the current political system does not respect citizens and that's evident in the fact that politicians only wheel themselves out every three years to appeal for votes Sometimes one, if we look at the past with rose tinted glasses, like has it always it's always been this way a little bit, hasn't it? Has it got worse? <laughs> uh, well, as has been kind of noted multiple times, I'm 22. Uh, I've only been able to vote in two elections, uh, so I can't really speak to what has happened in the past. All I can do is look at research and data, and turnout has declined and is declining. And there's been people in not just Auckland Council but in various districts at your age running for council before mm. on a similar platform but they never quite got the cut through that you got. Mm. What was it about what you were saying and how you were going about it that worked do you think? Uh, so I think it was the fact that my campaign was premised initially on listening. I came in saying that we have a problem, that problem is a lack of engagement, but further it's that none of the current candidates are really seeking to meaningfully address any of the issues that we're facing. And it's also the fact that in an Auckland context a lot of those problems are kind of at crisis point. So uh, I, uh, it comes back to what I was saying before, I was giving people respect and saying, look, I'm very aware that I'm 22 and don't have the life experience of many of you who I'm appealing to votes from, uh, for votes from. But I am willing to listen and also here's transparently and openly where I'm getting my information and how I'm formulating my policy, here are the people behind it. Uh, And I also, I I don't think that my campaign would have been possible even five years, a decade ago, because my first port of call when I had no money was Facebook. 
Uh, and Facebook is where a lot of people spend a lot of their lives, and that's the reality of it. And I don't think that most politicians have grasped that yet. And where I first found myself was engaging in spaces that weren't necessarily my own page. I would go out into comment threads on the Herald or News Hub or whatever and reply to derogatory comments about myself or to uh, comments uh, which were quite often not founded in fact about uh, the solutions to problems and that brought people to my page to engage with me and I found that when you critically seek to engage with people that wasp really likes me um, when you seek to properly engage with people uh, <laughs> they will they, they will engage and uh, they, they want to be listened to and that again is the respect thing right now politics isn't respecting people so people don't respect politics there's a flip side to that too like politicians obviously have to go out to people um, sell them something to vote for like you've talked about but people also have to take some responsibility and get involved themselves and, and kind of force politicians to listen how do we encourage that and what needs to be done there so there's a, there's tons of different point uh, like kind of pressure points there that we can uh, enter into uh, that can look like different types of people standing for political positions because we do uh, kind of have an entrenched idea about who those people should be and it has become boring and stagnant in that respect as well so it's the same kinds of crowds and demographics who vote but also end up in office so I think that that's a place that it could change uh, further in talking about as I spoke about earlier uh, young people in particular, which is the audience that I've spoken to the most, are incredibly socially aware and politically engaged, but they just don't engage perhaps how their parents did, which is through voting. Uh, I think that through the likes of protest or petition or otherwise, uh, people can mobilise and organise. I think in a very New Zealand context, perhaps the largest issue is that we're individualised and we individualise blame and responsibility for all of our social issues and I don't know, I mean I'm doing the best that I can with the resources available to me and right now I feel like the best place to try and showcase uh, change and do what I can to change society for the better is within the political realm. Because I operated for a long time in the cultural realm, uh, in media and in awareness and otherwise. Yeah, and that's what I kind of wanted to talk about next. So you've had a rapid rise, it probably hasn't even been a year since the mayoral campaign started. Yeah. And before that you had a lot of different projects on the go and it seemed like you were making a difference to a lot of people. Mm. What? How did you come to decide to go dive full on into politics? Because it will be, I mean, you've, yeah. you've got a good position on the list yeah. and you're highly likely to get into parliament. So I, possibly, I'm not sure, but I look at politics differently to a lot of people who lament career politicians and otherwise. I had a lot of people uh, who came out of the woodwork when I announced that I was running with the Green Party saying that now I was another career politician, which I think is kind of ridiculous given that I'm 22 and have never been a politician uh, and you've got people like Winston who've been in there for 30 plus years who are. Uh, I do not see myself operating in politics for the rest of my life. Right now, as I said before, I think that it is the place where I can make the most difference at the moment. Uh, so that looks like a legislative framework which supports everybody in society and funding for important things like mental health. It uh, looks like changing the prison system so that we stop this just, just cannibalisation, uh, just 
just mass incarceration and otherwise. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I see politics as the place to be at the moment. It's not necessarily where I'm going to spend the rest of my days. And you've spent this weekend in Palmerston North and Whanganui. The difference, the issues in places like Palmerston North and Whanganui are not maybe housing and transport quite like they are in Auckland. Have you got a sense in your short time here what voters here are looking for this election? Well, and the people who I've spoken to, because it has been a visit essentially to listen as much as I can. I mean, there's been a few events put on where it's been organised that I talk, but I much prefer to have questions and answers and and engage with people. Um, I don't think it's really my place to come into communities like this and dictate solutions when I don't know the communities, uh, and I'll be open and honest about that. Um, it, it does seem to be environmental. It seems to be a job opportunity as well, particularly for younger people, but also um, older folks who lament the fact that shops are closing along their main streets. And it seems to be that exodus of uh, opportunity and job creation. Any solutions for that? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's exactly what I highlighted in um, my discussion earlier. It is localisation. It is changing the way that we view uh, the economy and society's interaction with the economy. Insofar as we need greater... uh, Well, so take my example of uh, Taranaki and oil and gas. Those who are most invested in maintaining the status quo there are employers because they make a lot of money out of the extraction of oil and gas. Oil and gas workers are interested in having a job, so they work in oil and gas. If we can offer them clean, green jobs that they can be proud of, then of course they'll take those and they'll ditch oil and gas work, you know. Uh, And it's just shifting that mindset and that framework. And I think it's part and parcel of the modern decline of the likes of unions. And it again comes back to this individualisation. We have no community responsibility for the things that are happening here. And it's this appeal to the free market for solutions. And the free market's failed us in that respect. That was Chloe's Warbrick. And now here's a recording from her talk at Article earlier that morning. Remember to subscribe on iTunes to The 4500 and you can visit the4500.co.nz and follow us on Facebook. A lot of them were facing this challenge, you do, as you get to kind of the brink of adulthood, where they wanted to pursue their passion. And their parents were telling them, that's totally not plausible, you're never going to make money, you have to go and do this conventional thing, whether it be studying accounting or otherwise. Uh, But I took that as my personal challenge to kind of adopt them and go, no, we can do this, let's make it happen. Uh, So we started hiring out spaces on short-term leases to do pop-up shops and to show their parents that their passions were not just financially viable, but that other people in the community backed them and could kind of buy into it. So we're doing this. Uh, Does anybody know the Crystal Palace in Auckland? The old theatre? Yeah, cool, good. Nicola knows it. Uh, so it's a 90-year-old building. It's one of the old suburban cinemas in Auckland, and it's just around the place uh, where Alex and I live. And I used to walk past it every day to catch the bus. And it's 90 years old. It's totally dilapidated, and it had scaffolding out the front, and it was just unusable. And it was a bit of an eyesore as well. And I decided that that was the place that we wanted to do a permanent space. Uh, that we could permanently embody all of these things that we were doing as pop-ups temporarily around Auckland. 
so I got talking to people and we finally got in touch with the landlord uh, and me being this, I think I was about 20 at the time, uh, sitting in front of these landlords who owned a multi-million dollar property convincing them that I was the perfect person to rent that space. Uh, and managed to get them to agree. Initially we were going to do it as just an art gallery, but with the premise of trying to showcase young local artists' work, uh, the real question was how they were going to pay $600 a week in rent. So uh, we got a friend on board, uh, Brian, who worked at All Press for six years, uh, and he came on board with the coffee knowledge. And then we thought, well, we'll have some kind of food element to it. So for some reason, donuts made sense because we're 22. Uh, so uh, now we have an art, uh, an art gallery, a coffee shop, and a donut shop uh, up in Auckland. Uh, so all of this kind of came to a head at the end of 2015, start of 2016, when I was still working at BFM. Uh, and I was interviewing all of the top four mayoral candidates as the mainstream media had picked them. So that was a bit from John Polino, Mark Thomas, and obviously Phil Goff. And I was talking to them about all of these critical issues that myself and my friends and everybody in Auckland were facing, and as all of you are probably acutely aware, given that Auckland dominates the headlines all the time, uh, with housing and homelessness and transport and job opportunities diminishing. And I was talking to them about this and asking them questions and trying to get a meaningful response to these very critical issues that we were facing. And to speak quite frankly, I was thoroughly uninspired by the solutions that all of them were offering because they were incrementalist and they, they didn't really seek to change the status quo or to fix or to improve things. And this was after four years of talking to politicians who just used my questions as a platform to talk about their platform and to never answer questions. So I was just pissed off. <laughs> I was really, really angry operating in this space as a, as a business person and as someone who organised community events and as a journalist and having these politicians who are supposed to be running our country and helping to support our society not being held accountable and not allowing themselves to be held accountable. So my producer, Lillian Hanley, kind of joked to me at the time, you should run for mayor. And of course that was crazy. It was, I mean, I'm 22, says it probably being said enough. Uh, and the more I thought about it, the more it just became apparent. You know, who, do, who does it benefit the assumption that someone like me can't be involved in the political sphere as a politician? Who does it benefit the assumption that only people with grey hair or 45 plus years of experience, whatever experience means, can be politicians? And then I was looking at turnout statistics and I found out that in 2013 only 34.7% of Auckland voted. And I was like, how the hell can we have a representative democracy when two thirds of people aren't voting? You know, that's the very role of mayor, is to have a vision and to inspire. But all of these people who were putting themselves forward weren't inspiring and further didn't really seem to, to want to fix things in the way that they needed to be fixed. They were quite happy to maintain the power structures that keep people like them in power. So I looked into it more and more and I found out that literally the only barriers to someone like me standing for public office was that I had to be 18, I had to pay $200 for administrative costs, I had to have two nominees, and I had to live in Auckland. And that's it. That's, that's basically the only barriers that we have in New Zealand and our society to get involved in the democratic process. So it's quite 
ridiculous then that we've got this presumption about who should be a politician, right? You know, especially if it's supposed to be a representative democracy. So I was like, yeah, screw it, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, so I put my role at the FM because it was quite a conflict of interest, just be supposedly reporting impartially uh, on the current affairs of the day and also be trying to rule the current affairs of the day. Uh, so I put myself forward for the mayoralty and first and foremost, I didn't actually have any policy. And the reason for that is that Policy didn't seem to matter at that point. You know, there was, there was all kinds of policy in 2013, but people didn't vote and people seemingly didn't care. So I wanted to ask them why they didn't care and what their hopes and dreams and ideas for Auckland's future were. And what I found is that in asking that question, I got thousands of responses. It was almost as though nobody had ever thought to ask before. You know, there's this crazy mythologizing of why aren't young people voting? Well, maybe it's because they don't have anything to vote for. And what I've found more and more in talking to people is that they've lost faith in institutions. They, they just, they've lost that trust. So I started talking to community leaders and to researchers and academics and people a lot smarter than me, acknowledging first and foremost that yes, at 22, I do not have the answer to everything. But at the same time, any politician who tells you that they have the answer to everything is lying. But worse than that, they are entrenched so far in their way of thinking that they're not open-minded. And they don't want to entertain different ideas or different ways of doing things, which is crucial when the system is so screwed. So yeah, uh, I ended up talking to all these people, producing what in my mind was probably the best policy of any uh, candidate during the campaign, uh, and started doing public meetings, ended up getting involved in about 60 debates throughout the four months that I was in there. Uh, probably one of my most classic experiences is that the Herald produced a 23-page local election guide. Uh, they gave all of who they perceived as the important candidates two pages. They gave me a line, which they didn't consult me on, uh, which was that Chloe Swarbrick wants to represent the youth of today in Aotearoa or in Tamaki Makoto. Uh, and for me, again, that was just that was a way of pigeonholing me. Yes, absolutely, I want to stand for youth, but I want to stand for everybody. I want to stand for the disengaged and the disenfranchised. And it's, it's been quite evident as well recently. I'm the token young person now in politics, so I get a call uh, whenever there's any kind of controversy or polarisation between the boomers and the millennials. Gen Y somehow lost. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it was perfect when uh, Bill English announced the superannuation age going up. I got all of these phone calls, people going, don't you just hate the boomers? You know, they're pulling the ladder up after you. My response was that it's super goddamn unproductive to be focusing on fighting each other when it's the systemic injustices that are causing these problems. Things like poverty does not discriminate on the basis of age. But for some reason, you know, it's this individualization of blame and fault that I'm totally not interested in. So we ran this campaign uh, for the mayoralty, me and a few of my friends, and we did some social media and some videos and went to these public meetings and ended up getting just less than $30,000, which was mad. And obviously I had journalists who had previously ignored me then coming up to me afterwards and saying, what are you going to do next? And that was funny because I'd been working the whole time because I needed to pay my rent. Uh, and I told them that. 
But what they were really looking for was, are you, are you going to stay involved in the political process and throw your weight and whatever this magical juju is that you've managed to summon out of the young people and the supposedly apathetic uh, and get them engaged and get into general politics or whatever. So I gave myself four weeks to make a decision uh, because as is probably quite evident from this really tangential story, I like to make snap decisions uh, and I made my friend Caitlin accountable for that. And I thought about it more and more because I'd, I'd never wanted to be a politician. Obviously I was really interested in the way that our society worked and the power structures that existed and who those power structures benefited. And I was like, yes, yes, I want to change things. And having studied law and critical theory and worked in journalism and tried to hold politicians to account, I wanted to jump from influence in that cultural sphere to influence in that structural sphere. Because right now, that's what I perceive as the pivotal crux point that we can make the most change the fastest. And really the only place for me to do that, uh, given my value set, was in the Green Party of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that's because I deeply believe, and this is going to sound like brainwashing, but I deeply believe that Green values are New Zealand values. And that's the big question that I want us to be asking ourselves this year, given it is an election year is what does New Zealand stand for in 2017? I've spoken to a lot of older people and they'll kind of wax nostalgia about our stance on nuclear free or about the Springbok tour. Some will refer to kind of the suffragette movement. But what does New Zealand stand for in 2017? Those who are positive uh, will look at kind of the perceptions or what we'd like to stand for. But the fact of the matter is, is that those perceptions do not meet reality right now. Because the reality looks like mass incarceration. It looks like environmental degradation for short-term profit. It looks like growing inequality. It looks like child poverty. And those are the things that I want to bring to light and to actually start addressing. So that's me. Um, and now we can move into some questions if you have any. <laughs>